welcome to the Empowered Podcast. I'm your host, Robin Tudor, Certified Lifestyle Medicine Practitioner. My aim is to help everyday people understand science, not the science, and to use that understanding to make better choices for their health and well-being. Each episode, I'll be bringing my latest Substack post to you in audio form. For the full visual experience, including graphs, charts, images, and videos, view the accompanying post in my Empowered Substack. And now, let's dive in. Episode 61, The COVID Myocarditis Hustle Health authorities have repeatedly stated that you're more at risk of developing myocarditis from COVID-19 than from the so-called vaccine. They lied. Remember when the COVID-19 vaccines were sold to you as completely safe and effective? Sure you do. COVID-19 vaccines are safe and they work. They've been through really rigorous uh, clinical trials. The safety profile for the vaccines is no different based on age, gender, race, ethnicity, or if you have certain common comorbidities like obesity or diabetes or lung disease. And it looks like the vaccine is equally safe across these populations. We have two vaccines that are going to be available to us immediately one produced by Pfizer, one produced by Moderna. Both show about equal efficacy of around 95%. The way we know that any medication works is by doing rigorous, randomized, controlled clinical trials. And that's what the all COVID vaccines are going through. The COVID-19 vaccines are really critical to prevent infection amongst people. So that's protecting yourself, but then also to try and reduce community spread, so protecting your neighbors. And that's really critical to reopening the economy, getting businesses going, and reopening schools. The vaccine, I think, is really critical for our communities of color. And I understand that there's hesitancy and potential distrust in the process. But the clinical trials that were done by the companies um, included a large number of individuals from a really varied background. And this was done specifically to try and address some of these concerns and history of not including communities of color in, in research. And I think that what they've done is by creating a very diverse population in our clinical trials, we can speak very specifically about the safety in these different populations. So specifically for communities of color, there is evidence that the, that the vaccine is just as safe and just as effective as it is for everybody else. In about a third of people who get the vaccine, you'll experience a reaction. And that's because the vaccine is doing what we want it to do, produce an immune response. You may have arm soreness. You may even have fever. You may feel like you have a headache. Um, you, your muscles may ache. It may mimic a mild form of COVID-19 or the flu. It's an inflammatory uh, side effect that just reflects the vaccine is working. So just because the side effects are similar to the illness does not mean you're gonna get COVID from the vaccine. It is actually impossible. It's better to schedule the vaccine uh, before a day off or when you don't have a lot of plans the next day because you may feel some side effects from it and you'll wanna have some time to recover from that. So anybody that's had kind of itching with penicillin or a sulfa drug or has a food allergy to eggs or something should feel um, safe uh, to get the vaccine. But what we do know is everybody needs to be monitored after they get the vaccine for a certain amount of time. And people that have had a serious allergic reaction to say a food uh, may wanna be monitored for a little bit longer. 
Well, once you get the vaccine, we still have to wear our masks. We still have to be mindful of social distancing until we can ensure that the community has herd immunity and that this virus isn't circulating anymore. One day we will be able to get back to normal, but it won't be immediate. So I see this as the final tool in our toolbox. We have masking, we have social distancing, and now we have a vaccine. I see a way out of this pandemic. I think the vaccines are a home run. Mmm, that did not age well. Remember when the authorities who told you that they were completely safe and effective admitted that they very rarely caused myocarditis and pericarditis, which are collectively called myopericarditis? You almost certainly do. Remember when those authorities told you that you should take them anyway and give them to your kids? Because the risk of developing myopericarditis, remember when those authorities told you that you should take them anyway and give them to your kids, because the risk of developing myopericarditis or other cardiac pathologies as a complication of COVID-19 was greater than the risk of developing it as an adverse reaction to the experimental transfection agent. And remember when they told you that this very, very rare myopericarditis was very, very mild? I'll bet you do. Remember when a cohort study of 23.1 million residents across four Nordic countries found that the risk of developing myocarditis in the 28 days after two injections of the Pfizer transfection agent was 5.31 times higher in males 16 to 24 years of age than it was in the pre-vaccination period during which SARS-CoV-2 was widely circulating? In 16 to 24-year-old males who received two shots of the Moderna product, the risk was 13.83 times higher than in the pre-vaccination period. Oh, you don't remember this study being loudly trumpeted by the corporate media? Funny that. It couldn't possibly have anything to do with the fact that this study clearly showed that the risk of injection-induced myocarditis in young men far exceeded their risk of infection-induced myocarditis. Could it? Remember when researchers found that the incidence of myopericarditis was 162.2 per million after dose 2 in US males aged 12 to 15? That's a risk of one case of myopericarditis per 6,200 boys who received two doses, and 93 per million in males aged 16 to 17. That's a risk of 1 in 10,800, compared to a background rate of 2.1 per million cases per week in boys and that 86.9% of patients were hospitalised, does that sound mild to you? And that the risk of being hospitalised for myopericarditis after two shots of mRNA transfection agent was 2.8 times higher than the risk of being hospitalised for or with COVID in boys aged 12 to 15, and 1.6 times higher in boys aged 16 to 17. You might remember this one because the pro-injection experts tried to bury it, insisting that it was inappropriate to use the Vaccine Adverse Events Reporting System, or VAERS, which was set up by the US government to detect safety signals from vaccines to conduct research on a safety signal of a vaccine, because science. And just a side note, it's worth pointing out that now that we know that the experimental transfection agent actually increases your risk of contracting a SARS-CoV-2 infection, you might remember the Cleveland Clinic study that I referenced in last week's podcast episode. It's a moot point whether COVID or the injection poses a bigger risk of developing myopericarditis. But anyway, back to the subject at hand. 
Remember when Swedish researchers published a report on the autopsy findings on 37 people who had died at the Karolinska University Hospital of acute respiratory distress syndrome attributed to COVID-19 and found no replicating SARS-CoV-2 in the heart tissue of the deceased people and no indications of myocarditis? Here's a quote from that study which was titled Morphological Changes Without Histological Myocarditis in Hearts of COVID-19 Deceased Patients. Quote, Furthermore, any sign of virus-induced cytopathic effects or any antiviral lymphocytic reaction typical for viral myocarditis was not detected in any cases. Also, signs of antiviral inflammation were not observed. Some studies claim there is a sign of lymphocyte infiltration in the COVID-19 heart. For example, multifocal lymphocytic myocarditis was observed in a small fraction of the cases in a multicenter COVID-19 pathological study. Furthermore, quantitative analysis of inflammatory infiltrates in COVID-19 hearts showed a higher number of CD68 positive cells, proposing that COVID-19 may cause a different type of myocarditis than conventional viral myocarditis, one that is associated with diffusely infiltrative monocyte or macrophage cells. However, we didn't detect any lymphocyte or granulocytic infiltration in the COVID-19 cohort as a hallmark of myocarditis, end of quote. No, you don't remember that study? I guess it didn't quite fit the narrative that COVID-19 myocarditis was much more dangerous than injection-induced myocarditis, did it? Remember when an international team of researchers published a review of all the reports that they could find of people who died of or with COVID-19 in the pre-injection era, a total of 548 deceased people, whose autopsy reports identified cardiovascular pathologies and found a, quote, low prevalence of myocarditis in COVID-19, end of quote. Here's a longer quote from that study titled COVID-19-Associated Cardiac Pathology at the Postmortem Evaluation, a Collaborative Systematic Review. Quote, the median reported prevalence of extensive myocarditis, multifocal active myocarditis and focal active myocarditis were all 0.0% and the median prevalence of inflammatory infiltrate without myocyte damage was 0.6%. End of quote. If you don't remember that study, that's probably because it received next to no publicity. I wonder why. Finally, do you remember when Israeli researchers published a cohort study of almost 200,000 people comparing rates of myopericarditis for which hospitalization was required, that is moderate to severe cases, in the pre-injection era in people who had had COVID-19, which they defined as at least one positive PCR test for SARS-CoV-2. And yes, I know that this is a nonsensical diagnostic criterion, but it's the one the branch Covidians use, so I'm happy to see them hoist with their own petard. So they compared that to rates of myocarditis in those who had not tested positive at any stage and found that there was no increase in rates of either myocarditis or pericarditis in people who had had COVID. The rate of myocarditis in post-COVID-19 patients was 0.046%, while in the control group who had never had COVID-19, it was 0.046%. 0.056% of post-COVID-19 patients were diagnosed with pericarditis, compared to 008 8% of controls. What? You haven't heard of this study? Your doctor didn't tell you about it, even though it was published in April of last year, that is 2022? Well, if you weren't told about any of these studies before being injected with a novel RNA transfection agent, you weren't given informed consent. 
If you were told that your teenage son's risk of getting myocarditis was higher if he got COVID than if he got the shot, neither of you was given informed consent and in fact you were outright lied to. As the Australian Medical Professional Society, AMPS, has pointed out in a letter sent to all Australian doctors on the 11th of January 2023, the federal government, the Australian Health Practitioner Regulation Agency and the Australian Immunisation Handbook all oblige Australian doctors and other vaccination providers to obtain informed consent before administering any treatment, including vaccines or other products deceptively labelled as vaccines. Here's a quote from the Australian Immunisation Handbook. Quote, For consent to be legally valid, it must be given voluntarily in the absence of undue pressure, coercion or manipulation. It can only be given after the potential risks and benefits of the relevant vaccine, the risks of not having it, and any alternative options have been explained to the person. End of quote. Furthermore, AMPS notified doctors that they do not have any government liability protection with respect to the novel COVID-19 transfection agents. And you know what that means? If you or a loved one developed myopericarditis or any other adverse event that your doctor should reasonably have known about after receiving a COVID-19 injection and you were not informed of the risk of this event prior to being injected, you can sue the person who administered the product to you. Can you imagine how quickly this entire disastrous enterprise could be stopped if every single person who suffered an adverse reaction and every single person who lost a loved one sued the so-called vaccine provider for failing to give them informed consent? Professional indemnity insurance premiums would shoot through the roof, doctors and other vaccine providers would refuse to administer the shots for fear of being sued. And who knows, doctors might even remember that their role is to care for their individual patients, not to serve as the commissars of the biosecurity state. And by the way, if you are part of or you know of a legal firm who is willing to represent people injured by the experimental injections, please go to the post accompanying this podcast episode and leave the details of that legal firm in the comments section. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend and on your socials and make sure you subscribe to my Empowered Substack so you never miss a post.